Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Giving and helping others has become trendy in popular culture today. And it seems like everyone wants to get in on giving. And they don't just want to do it for the tax write-off either. Dave Ramsey includes giving in his plan to help people get out of debt. Bill Clinton wrote a book called Giving. Extreme Makeover Home Edition is a hit every time it's on. Oprah started a TV show, you might remember, called The Big Give. Tom's Shoes is a shoe company that donates a pair of shoes to kids who don't have shoes every time someone buys a pair of their shoes. And then there's the guy that I met at Kristen's high school reunion some years ago who proudly told me that he has his own charity. Really. Basically, he throws parties and charges people a cover fee, makes a little profit, and then donates the extra to what he deems to be a worthy cause. That's a charity. So giving and helping others is popular right now for sure. And it's even become popular in many churches today. But it hasn't always been that way. You see, as each generation passes through their time as the majority population in the church, they make shifts according to what they value. In the last 80 years, ever since the Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925, the past 80 years have featured three shifts in particular that I want to describe for you with general terms. And i got to say that as a qualifier because there are always exceptions to every general statement. So just that's my disclaimer at the front end of this. Uh, if you wanted to read more about this, by the way, I'm not a sociologist and I pulled this out of The Younger Evangelicals, which is a book by the now uh, deceased Robert Weber, uh, sociology professor, theology professor at Wheaton College. That's my disclaimer. The first shift took the form of the traditional church. They viewed the church as the central place in town, the common meeting ground where all people should come to worship God and socialize with their neighbors. Social media, obviously, wasn't around. And so if you wanted to see someone and catch up, you'd have to go to church or the hair salon. And they called sin a sin, separated from the evil world, included a lot of bureaucracy and decision-making. They gave their money to possibly support a missionary in Honduras, but most weren't likely to help a hurting person across the tracks from their own neighborhood. Now, if you've ever seen the movie The Help or read the book The Help, you'll know that that was actually one of the ironies They raised money to support hungry African children while belittling the black people right in front of them. That was ironic. And the irony stood out. Now the next shift took the form of the contemporary church. There was, of course, that Jesus movement. Y'all might have heard of that from the late 60s, early 70s. 
But that was so sporadic, they called it spirit-led, that it never really took on a sustainable form. And so the shift was the contemporary church, and the contemporary church said, we're driving people away with all the over-religious language. And so they built buildings without any religious decor. And they didn't talk so much about sin as they did about purpose. And sinners don't want to be called out, you know, and so they made everything anonymous. And they turned out the lights because, heaven forbid, you see your neighbor praising God. And they took a page out of Jack Welch's business playbook, and they thought that what Jack did for General Electric, they could do for Jesus. And when it came to serving, the goal was to get as many people as possible lending a hand at the church. That's fine, but the problem is that it didn't usually translate into a life of devoted servanthood outside of the church. And so, for instance, you could have a guy holding the door, welcoming people to church on Sunday who wouldn't hold the door for the person walking behind him into Target. You see the disconnect. And the third shift is the latest to be taking place. And it's emerging right now in pockets around the country among the generation of people who will be the majority in the church in the next 20 years. And this shift takes the form of what's called the missional church. And the missional church doesn't think too highly of business practices in the church. Those things come across as manipulative. They don't call it excellence, they call it slick and inauthentic. And authenticity is to the missional church what excellence was to the contemporary church. Their buildings are more earthy, with symbols of the cross and baptism and communion all around. and But the crosses, they're not like steeples. They're more like ancient Celtic crosses. And what those do is they recall to mind that our heritage runs back through the centuries and across the globe. When it comes to serving, they're actually less likely to give their money to the church per se, but they are more likely to roll up their sleeves and do the work of a missionary in the midst of their own local communities. And that's why they're called missional. Now each of these styles, I want to follow up quickly, each of these styles, traditional, contemporary, missional, they all have their own pros and cons. But one thing has remained constant, and that is that Christians have a command from God to help people especially those whom the world has rejected and neglected. When we get this wrong, non-Christians notice and it adds ammunition to their unbelief. Christopher Hitchens, y'all may have heard of him. He died last year, but before he did, he wrote a book, best-selling book called God is Not Great. In the book, he chronicles all the harm that people have done to others in the name of God. And then he advocates a ban on all religions. Now this guy was featured on Fox News and other major news networks pretty often actually before he died. And even today his book is still featured prominently on those front tables at Barnes & Noble from time to time. So it isn't like this issue and his comments don't affect us. If we open our ears, they're all around us. Look at all the harm the church has done. That's his argument. So the church needs to be reminded over and over 
of the great importance that acts of compassion have in our own lives, as well as the impact that they make for the kingdom of God throughout the world. And so tonight the message is called, Love God, Love People. The love we receive from God is to be reflected out toward others through acts of compassion. And acts of compassion, the way I'm using the phrase, take place when we love others. And they happen in both public and private ways. One isn't necessarily better than the other. Even though Jesus did say there are good things that should be done in secret, He also said to do your good works so people see them and give praise and glory to your Father who is in heaven. Secret and public. Both coming from Jesus. And so it's not an either or, it's a both and. Acts of compassion are are performed in both public and private ways. Now, when I became a Christian and started reading the Bible, I was convinced that God wanted His people, which now included me, to help others. But I didn't know where to start. Our church calendar didn't have a lot of that. They had a lot of other stuff, not a lot of that. And so I remembered seeing an episode of The Simpsons on TV where Lisa, you know, Homer, Homer's daughter, Lisa wanted to volunteer. She wanted to help somebody. And she says, where am I going to go? And so she went down to the Springfield Soup Kitchen. Well, I didn't have anybody else pointing me in any direction. And so I pulled out the yellow pages, looked it up, and I called the Salvation Army of Raleigh. Phoned them up. Hey, I'm trying to volunteer, trying to help somebody. Oh, well, you're, you know, not us. You need to call the Soup Kitchen down in downtown. So I hung up the phone, called the Soup Kitchen downtown, got on their Friday night rotation. Every Friday night, headed to downtown serving soup to homeless people. As a 17-year-old, that's what I did. All by myself. No youth pastor, no youth group, no buddies tagging along. Me and some homeless people. And that experience left a deep impression on me. And it impacts how I think about ministry to young people today. So acts of compassion are a vital part of growing faith. And so what I want to do tonight is try to convince you with three reasons why we as a church should be involved in acts of compassion that extend beyond the walls of the church. The first one is this, the Bible. That's the trump card. The first reason we should be involved in acts of compassion beyond the walls of the church is the Bible. There are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that mention our relationship to the poor, the downcast, the rejected, the needy. Moses very clearly told the people, If among you one of your brothers should become poor, you shall not harden your heart or be tight-fisted toward him. Instead, be generous, lend them whatever they need. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, For the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I am commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other people in need. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 through 10. 
Be generous. Give generously. Don't be tight-fisted. And that's not a salesman saying that. That's Moses. Or look at this. When the biblical city of Sodom gets mentioned, usually you've heard it as a talking point on some national news program, it's usually in reference to their sexual ethics. Right? You know what I'm talking about. But the sins of Sodom weren't just homosexuality and rape. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. And they did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50. Now, the New Testament is no different on this theme. If you thumb through it, 1 John chapter 3 asks how anyone could possibly have the love of God living in him if he shuts up his heart to those in need. James chapter 2 says that failing to take care of the needy among you is actually an example of dead faith. The Bible is relentless on this point. Acts of compassion are the proper work for God's people. Now the second reason that we should be involved in acts of compassion is church history. I heard Jimmy say he likes reading church history. I like reading church history. It obviously helps us learn from some of our mistakes and shape the future. Historically, the church has been found working for change in the least desirable parts of the community. And everywhere it happened, the world took notice. The Roman emperor named Julian didn't like Christians, but wrote about his shock to find out that Christians not only fed their own poor people, they also shared with the poor who weren't Christian. One historian has noted that most astounding to the outside observer was the extent to which poverty was overcome in the vicinity of churches through voluntary acts of compassion. Christians spent more money in the streets than the followers of other religions spent on their temples. John Mott's Christian convictions led him to build little community centers to help get young men off the streets. Those little community centers eventually became the YMCA. Imagine how upset John Mott would be today when he saw that the typical YMCA is filled with programs for upper-class suburban families, while guys on the street can't even afford a day pass. It's just a thought. Now, Christians have also led the way in building schools, libraries, and hospitals. And so it seems to me that for Christopher Hitchens to write a book called God is Not Great, based on the atrocities committed by people in the name of God, it seems to me that most of the stories that he highlighted were stories actually not of Christian people, but of fanatical groups that went around committing atrocities for personal gain in the name of God. And there is a difference. Just because somebody says that they're operating in the name of God does not mean that they are. For people who followed the way of Jesus, helping those in need has always been 
the normal mode of operation. Wherever they went, they helped people inside and outside the church. The third reason that I want to tell you that we should be involved in acts of compassion is simply love. The Bible commands it. Church history demonstrates it. But love, love does it. Love is the differentiating factor between the ways that people casually give to charities or pitch in a little and the acts of deep compassion that Christians are called to. Love is the differentiating factor. That's why Paul said, if I give everything I have to the poor, and even sacrifice my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. Without love, He gained nothing. And without love, we gain nothing. Nothing. And so here's the big idea tonight. Real faith in God produces real love for people. Real faith in God produces real love for people. Look at these verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. I have heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere. Colossians chapter 1, verse 4. We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We can't help but thank God for you because your faith is flourishing and your love for one another is growing. Do you hear the connection? Time and time again, real faith in God produces real love for people. But I get it. I don't live in my office. I get it. People are difficult to put up with. So how do you grow in your love for people who are, well... So hard to love. Right? How are you going to do that? And there are tons of relationship books out there. I read a lot. Some of those books are more helpful than others. And I think you can cut through most of that stuff with the two things I'm going to tell you right now. First, step out of the spotlight. Step out of the spotlight. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for only your own interests. Take an interest in others too. Step out of the spotlight. Here's the deal. Most of us, myself included, suffer from something known as spotlight syndrome. You may have heard of this. It means that We think that everyone's watching us. Everyone's thinking about us. Everyone's talking about us. We are in the spotlight at the front of everybody's mind. It's got to be, right? If I have a zit right here, I know people are going to be talking about it. 
Most times they don't even notice it, honestly. Now, it's also called self-centeredness, if you don't want to call it the spotlight syndrome, or sometimes you could just call it plain old vanity. Whatever you call it, though, I think it's the biggest reason why people don't love others, much less help them. Because they just don't take the time to notice other people. They're so wrapped up in themselves, they just don't even notice. If you spend all your energy and money on how you look in the eyes of other people, then you never have any energy or money left to help other people. I'll say that again. If you spend all your energy and all your money on how you look in the eyes of other people, then you never have any energy or money left to help other people. And so a good start is to look around us and take notice. Other people exist. And the odds are good that at the current moment, they're not thinking about you. They're not talking about you. They are not, you are not on their radar. All right? So the first step to grow in your love for other people is to step out of the spotlight. Second step is this. Grow in your faith. Grow in your faith. I'm not kidding. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6 says this. What is important is faith in God showing itself in love to other people. So you want to love other people, get some faith in God. You see, you see how the verse works, right? If you want to love other people, get some faith in God. Because faith in God shows itself in love for other people. You see how the, how the verse works. That's why I put it up there. You want to grow in love for other people, grow in faith in God. Now, if you're wondering how you can tell if God's grace is working in your life, here's how you can tell. Do you love people more than you used to? Are you more forgiving than you used to be? Do you gossip less about people than you used to? Are you more inclined to use your time and money to help others? I think that's challenging. Because there are a lot of well-meaning people who live like this verse says, what's important is the kind of music the church plays. What's important is getting your 401k in order so you can retire in style. What's important is making sure that everyone's happy. Because you can enjoy the music, have your 401k in order, and make sure everybody's happy insofar as you can, and still waste your life because you missed out on what is eternally important. Faith in God showing itself in love to other people. So the best question to help us think along these lines is this. Simple question. How can I help? Andy Stanley wrote a book called The Best Question Ever. That question was, what is the wise thing to do? Try as I may, I can't come up with a better question. 
What is the wise thing to do? Might be the best question ever. So if that's the case, I have dubbed this as the second best question ever. I'm not writing a book about it, but... How can I help? How can I help? This question, more than any other question, helps to get me thinking about what I can do to make a difference in someone else's life right now. And I try to ask this question everywhere I am. At church, at home, in a store, in the car. It'll save you from road rage. Sometimes the answer is big like giving a guy $500 to cover some of his expenses while he's out of work looking for a job. Sometimes you want to leave an anonymous gift for a person that has contributed in a big way in your life. Students, I highly recommend that you do that for a teacher, your favorite teacher, one that you think makes a difference in the school. Leave them an anonymous gift, a gift card to, to, to a restaurant, something. Don't put your name on it. All right, because otherwise they'll think you're sucking up and it might backfire, but you're not sucking up. What you're doing is you're saying, I appreciate you, I appreciate the work that you do, because teachers, in my opinion, are highly underpaid. And the, only, and the way to, uh, to know what a society values is to look at what it pays people. And if you look at uh, the salary of entertainers versus the salary of educators, you'll know what our society values. Educators are drastically underpaid. And so think about it. Ask, how can I help? They're not there for the money. Sometimes the answer is small. Like unloading the dishwasher, fellas. Letting a person merge into your lane on the interstate. Hard as that might be with white-knuckled faith on the steering wheel. <laughs> uh, my personal favorite is helping the, the guy... Uh, in the, in the grocery store parking lot, or even at Walmart. I don't do it at Walmart because I don't want to risk my life technically. But at, gro- at the grocery stores is good. There's carts, you know this, spread out all over the place. You probably left half of them there. All right? Not in the cart returns, by, I might add. I know this because I used to pick up carts. I've worked at Walmart and Target. I know. The carts are everywhere. And so you want to help out. The kid's probably 17 doing it. Right? You want to help him out? Go stick about four cards together and just push them on in. It's a little thing, but it just answers the question, how can I help? Everywhere you go, you can help. So either way, big stuff, small stuff, public stuff, private stuff, this question, how can I help, it puts you in a position to be used by God everywhere you go. All of this is, of course, operating on the assumption that these actions are being motivated by the love of that is coming out because of the love that God is pouring in. You can't reflect the love that you're not receiving. We receive God's love, then we reflect that love out to other people. That's the language of the Bible that calls the church collectively the body of Christ. It wasn't just an idea that made for a nice preaching illustration. It was the best way to describe the reality that is taking place when people love God and love people. Through the church, through the body of Christ, 
Jesus continues to love and serve the world today. So where can we ask the question this week, how can I help? 